0: statement is not a paid ad. Holiday Inn City Center takes the safety of each and every employee and guest very seriously. Human trafficking is an issue worldwide and we are committed to doing our part in preventing it from happening through our hotel. It is our responsibility to the community and to our brand to ensure we are playing a critical role in preventing human trafficking. We recognize the importance of educating our employees and making sure they are trained on the Holiday Inn human rights policy and can identify signs of human trafficking. Our employees, from the front desk to security, sales, and housekeeping, all have their eyes and ears open to the potential risk and know how to react and combat the issue of human trafficking. Connectors, stay connected to hear more on how Holiday Inn City Center in Lafayette, Indiana is standing against human trafficking. And let's get connected. We are connected. Welcome, Connectors, to another episode of Connected to the Podcast. I am so excited to be here today with Morgan Bow. It's not Bow. I just <laughs> said it again. I'm so sorry. It is Bow. Bow. Morgan Bow, as in Bow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, She is the coalition coordinator for Indiana Trafficking Victims Assistance Program. Say that five times fast. I can't say it five <laughs>
1: times fast, especially when you add my job title, Regional Coalition Coordinator with uh. the Indiana Trafficking Victims Assistance Program. It gets crazy.
0: <laughs> well, that's why it's your title? Yes, it is. Well, again, welcome. Thank you. And we are here today at the West Lafayette Public Library. Um, this is my first time being here. So. It's mine, too. So thank you for inviting me here. Thanks for inviting me to your podcast. You're welcome. And of course, being the ITVAP Coalition Coordinator, Mm -hmm. um, we're here to talk about human trafficking. We are. And before we get into the heavy stuff, Morgan, Mm -hmm. where are you from?
1: I was born and raised in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, A little outside of the city, it was more so kind of right between the main city of Jacksonville and St. Augustine, Florida. So I was kind of in that middle area.
0: Much different from... Midwest, it Lafayette, It Indiana. is very
1: different. No beaches here. No, that's my biggest thing. That's the hardest thing for me. I love the seasons. I love the fall. Um, being landlocked has been very difficult for me these last few years.
0: You know, I must say, fall. being in the Midwest, fall has become my absolute mm-hmm. favorite time I of love the year. It.
1: I absolutely love it.
0: Because being from the South, I've never seen, like, orange and right. red. And I was like, that's real?
1: Right. Like, I always saw <laughs> pictures growing up. And then when I moved, eventually I was in Kentucky before I came here. Uh, when I was in Kentucky, I was like, I had seen pictures of trees turning this color, but mm-hmm. I'd never actually seen it. Seen <laughs> right. it, it, was, it was so cool. It was awesome. Right. <laughs> I loved
0: it. All right. So you're from Jacksonville, Florida. Mm-hmm. What was your first job growing up?
1: First job. So I... the. Okay, so, like, my first summer where I was working, I was working two jobs simultaneously, and okay. so it was a hectic summer, but I was working at a kids' arcade um, part-time, mm-hmm. and then I was working as a an assistant in, like, a tech department at the high school that I had graduated from, so I would go from, like, 7 to 3.30 p.m., and I'd work in the tech department, I'd set up new equipment. I'd take inventory of equipment that was coming in um, to then go to the, all the classrooms. And then I would leave at 3.30 and get across town uh, to do my other job from, like, 5 to 10 p.m. working oh, wow. at this kid's arcade. Yeah.
0: Working hard for <laughs> That's, That
1: was what it was. I was about to go into college. I was like, I need money for me to go. So I did two
0: jobs. Hard and I haven't done it since.
1: <laughs> so it was my like one experience. So one is
0: enough? Mm-hmm. Um, And how about any siblings? Just
1: me, me, myself, and I. Um, But I was very fortunate. My family, while Jacksonville is a very large city, my entire family, and I mean my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles on both sides of the family, Mm -hmm. with the exception of my dad's parents that lived in Michigan. Um, the entire, both sides of the family, uh, lived within a three-mile radius of each other. So oh. while I didn't have any siblings, I had a lot of cousins that were really close in age to me. So I spent a lot of time with them. Um, but it was great because it was like having siblings. Mm-hmm. But if I got mad at them, I could go to my own house <laughs> and I didn't have to deal
0: with it anymore. <laughs> I had a similar childhood until my brothers came along about... I guess when I was about eight or nine years old. So I have a a bunch of cousins as well. Yeah, Yeah. so um, let's see. What are, or maybe one of your fondest memories growing up?
1: yeah so i love this question because it it always brings a very specific memory to mind um which i love and it's being on the beach i did a beach day with my family it was my mom and dad some of my aunts and uncles were there Um, my parents best friends and their kids were there and we just spent an entire day and i just remember the whole crew kind of corralling onto the beach we set up the umbrellas we had the shovels and the the um, buckets and we did sandcastles my dad and his best friend had their fishing poles I remember walking up and down the shoreline i um, looking for shark's te- teeth with my mom and just an entire day just being there with my family and it I absolutely loved it
0: Aww. yeah I like it takes me
1: back yeah for sure I do love a good beach I do I love a good beach day whenever I get the chance to go home, I just, I want to be in the river, I want to be in the beach, I yeah, just want to be,
0: for sure. yeah,
1: in that, in that natural kind of habitat of mine.
0: all soon, I hope for yes, you. Yes, yes. Um, all right, so you're from Jackson, mm-hmm. you, I heard you say something about Kentucky, mm-hmm. so you went, you lived in Kentucky for a little while. I did. Um, what took you brought, well, yeah, it took you to Kentucky.
1: Grad school. Okay. Yeah, once I finished um, my bachelor's degree, I found myself in Kentucky for uh, specifically for the grad program. Um, that I went to there.
0: What did you study in undergrad? So
1: undergrad, I studied criminology and sociology. So bachelor's is in criminology with a minor in sociology. Um, I was one class away from also having a minor in psychology, but I elected to graduate a semester early instead of uh-huh. saying so. I was like, <laughs> I'm one, you know, three credits away, yeah. but it was Aww. it was close. Um, and so from there, I found myself being introduced to the grad program um, the school of criminal justice at eastern kentucky university in richmond kentucky and so i went from my undergrad which was florida southern college a very small school in lakeland florida Um, i think the entire college including commuter commuter students when i was there was less than students. Oh students it was very small but it was exactly what i needed Mm -hmm. and then from there I was at Eastern Kentucky University doing a master's in criminal justice with a research focus in human trafficking.
0: Oh, okay. Um,
1: and so while it was a big university, my program itself as a grad program was fairly small, Still, so I still got that one-on-one with, with professors that was really beneficial for me and my learning style.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Huh. Um, so criminology mm-hmm. is what you said in undergrad. Yes. Um, Had you always been interested in the law or criminology?
1: Yeah. Strangely, it was one of those things where from a very young age, as soon as I really discovered that that was a path that you could go down, that it was a field of study, I knew I wanted to do something within that realm. Um, and then as I got closer to going to school and I started to try and figure out what I wanted to do with my career, you know, what were my big amb- ambitions and my goals, um, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted it to be within that field of study. Mm-hmm. And so it was, there was really never any um, second guessing for me. It was once I was in it and able to focus on it, uh, it's all I wanted to do. I really didn't want to focus on anything else. I just wanted to stay within that um, social science, criminology, sociology field.
0: Hmm. So, yeah. And then when you got to grad school, mm-hmm. why specifically did you study human trafficking?
1: Yeah, so while I was in undergrad, I had the opportunity to work as a work study student. So I was a, working with the Department of Criminology and Sociology, working with those professors and just kind of helping them Um, kind of like a TA but we didn't teach. We helped them grade papers and do research for them because a lot of them were writing books at the time Mm -hmm. and the department head was really interested in doing a student-led campus-wide seminar on human trafficking Hmm. and as her work-study student I was tasked with kind of creating the call for abstracts and designing this entire conference which was just an incredible experience. And in order for me to even start, I had to know what human trafficking was. Because I had to know what, you know, to ask people to present Mm -hmm. on. That was gonna be my question, how did you know? So I started doing all this research and the professor I was working with just kind of steered me in a direction, like here are some good websites, here are some articles for you, Mm -hmm. let me know when you're ready to talk about it. And it was one of those things where I'd been in school for, almost three years at that point doing my undergrad. And I knew I wanted to do something in the field of criminology, criminal justice, but I wasn't sure what. And it was like the first time, the first article I read that mentioned human trafficking, it was like a, like a light switch. And I was like, this is what I want to do. Wow. So by the time I was ready to look at grad school, I knew I wanted something that was specific to human trafficking. And Eastern Kentucky University offered me that opportunity uh, to come to grad school and write a master's specifically or sorry write a thesis for my master's specific to human trafficking wow. and so they had me hooked yeah
0: so how much how much did you do you think you learned like in that short amount of time like just preparing your thesis
1: it was the craziest experience it but I wouldn't trade it for anything it was two years of unpacking everything I'd learned in undergrad and reforming it, reshaping my understanding of what criminal justice is, how we understand it, why laws are the way they are. And it was all sorts of um, systematic things and things we can link back to racism and discrimination and how we've built an entire system off of that. and when it comes to human trafficking, understanding at its farthest back in history how it's always been around, but how it's become a growing industry and how it's continuing to grow. So it was a lot of information jam-packed in two Mm -hmm. years. And then on top of my core classes, doing all of the thesis research, which I elected to do. A master, uh, a thesis in which I actually went out and interviewed social service providers and mm-hmm. law enforcement who worked on human trafficking cases, and to understand what they were providing, what they were lacking, what they wanted to see be improved in the state of Kentucky, and that was it was it was a lot it was a lot a lot a lot of work.
0: I bet. But it was incredible. So. What would be, and we're gonna talk later about um, some myths and Mm -hmm. tips and all that. But what was one of the biggest myths for you that was dispelled?
1: Oh my gosh. Um, The idea that human trafficking is not a quote unquote other issue. Um, Oftentimes when we see the way that it's portrayed in media or the way that it's been talked about in the past, it's always happening in other countries. Mm-hmm. It could never touch the United States because we would never allow something like that to happen. Right. And the harsh reality is we are one of the top destination countries in the entire world for human trafficking.
0: Wow, and wait, can you, yeah. can you say that again?
1: <laughs> uh, the United States is one of the top destination countries for human trafficking in the world. Wow. Um, we. And it's a fascinating breakdown because not only do we have a large number of people that are, that are in fact brought over from other countries for the purpose of exploitation, but we also have very high numbers of exploitation of our own US citizens. And so to see that kind of mix in the way that it's happening and how because of that and our perceptions of what human trafficking is and how it is this other issue and then seeing it in real life in the cases that we're working and how many uh, US citizens it's affecting and how it's affecting them and how it's going unreported and unseen because of that myth around it. Um for me that was that was the most eye-opening moment and that's kind of when I was like not only do I want to do this but I really need to do this work I need to be part of this Wow! and yeah. you know
0: um, it was a, about a month ago now I saw you at a presentation mm-hmm. and that was one of the things that blew my mind yeah. as well so again thank you for meeting with me to share with the connectors out there what this human trafficking is, and the myths, and how we can help in human trafficking. Now you are the coalition coordinator. Um, I thought you said like you, you have a, a longer title. Is that fine, coalition coordinator? Yes,
1: or? yes, absolutely. So the organization that I'm with, Itvap, which I'm sure we'll we'll kind of talk a little bit about that uh, soon. We are regional coalition coordinators, and what that means is. The state of Indiana for our program was broken up into 10 regions. So for 92 counties, there are 10 regional coalition coordinators covering anywhere from um, 8 to 11 counties. And each RCC, regional coalition coordinator, we call ourselves RCCs, lives within the region that we serve. So within those 8 to 11 counties. and we you know we live and work out of that area so i am a regional coalition coordinator with the indiana trafficking victims assistance program of indiana youth service association that is my full official title
0: uh-huh. I, and that's why i allowed you to yes. say in. okay so then um, explain what is itvap as well as Indiana Youth Service Association.
1: Sure. So we'll start with IYSA, Indiana Youth Service Association. And what that is, like I said, that's IYSA for our our acronym. What it is is it is the umbrella program that essentially houses all 31 youth service bureaus throughout the state of Indiana. And the reason that is, the reason IYSA came to be was because back uh, by the late 60s, Indiana ranked number two in the country for numbers of juvenile incarceration. So Indiana had a major issue with juvenile incarceration by the time we got to the 70s, and IYSA is the parent program that brought all the youth service bureaus together that said, we've got to do something about this, and we need to address this issue. So the youth
0: service bureaus are... I just have to ask you this, I'm sorry. Number two... In juvenile incarceration, yes. this is like outside of human trafficking. Yes, this this is this
1: is just broad, any form wow. juvenile incarceration, wow. juvenile delinquency, juvenile incarceration. We were number two, ranked number two out of fifty, and um, so, IYSA houses those youth, youth service bureaus and. When I say houses, I mean the Youth Service Bureaus are all throughout the state. Mm -hmm. and There's 30 to 31 of them, which sounds great, but when you consider that this is a 92 county state, we have a third of the state covered with these Youth Service Bureaus. And what they do is they offer programming and resources. They go out, they educate on juvenile delinquency, they do community outreach, they work to reduce those levels of juvenile delinquency which we have seen a very positive correlation with since IYSA came to be yes. in our levels of incarceration uh, for juveniles. There's definitely, we've we've definitely gone down and, and a lot of it is attributed to these programs because what they do is they work with youth and their families who are considered at risk and whether that be at risk for juvenile delinquency, at risk for exploitation as well, and working with them and trying to give them other outlets and resources to circumvent that problem. And then from there, uh, and that's been around since 1973, and then from there ITVAP was created, Indiana Trafficking Victims Assistance Program, which came to be in October of 2015. So we're a fairly Fairly new program. Mm -hmm. We're we're young, but what we are is a grant-funded program under IYSA and we work specifically on issues of human trafficking. So we work on that community education, that training and outreach, that service provision referral, case coordination specific to human trafficking. And a big part of what we do, really the number one thing that we do, is go out into our communities in the regions that we serve. So again, that's those, you know, eight to eleven counties per region. And we go out into those counties that we that we are trying to immerse ourselves in and speak to them about what human trafficking is. And we work with everyone from our law enforcement, our prosecutor's offices, our DCS offices. I've done community forums. I've spoken for church congregations. I've spoken with hotels. So really, anyone who's interested in this issue, we're able to go out and speak to them about human trafficking.
0: Holiday Inn City Center in Lafayette, Indiana, We recently had our local law enforcement come talk to us about the resources that are available to us and the signs we need to look for to identify human trafficking. We are happy to support local law enforcement's efforts in combating the issue of human trafficking and will not hesitate to reach out to them should we suspect any alleged incidents of human trafficking. Everyone wants to think that it would never happen in their hotel, but the reality is it can happen in any hotel. It doesn't matter if you are five stars or only one. It can happen. At Holiday Inn City Center, the only hotel in the downtown area in Lafayette, Indiana, we are aware of the risk, and every employee at Holiday Inn City Center in Lafayette, Indiana is committed to doing their part in preventing human trafficking from happening here. So how did you get into this role? What were you doing before joining this task force? Yes.
1: So, um, by the time that I had finished my master's degree, uh, like I said, it was specific to criminal justice research focus in human trafficking. And I, from Kentucky, found my way to Indiana, Mm -hmm. where I began working with the prosecutor's office as the domestic violence unit's victim assistance specialist. So what that meant was when Police reports were made about incidents of, and I was fortunate enough that I worked both the domestic violence cases and any human trafficking cases that came through our office, and I provided that assistance. So when those reports came in, if we needed to do follow-up with um, the victims of the report, if we needed to speak with them further, make sure we got some clarification, we were able to do that, and I facilitated that. But then I was also there to provide resources. So with the domestic violence unit, That was a grant-funded program within the prosecutor's office. And so we were able to provide um, therapy referrals. So there was a therapist that we worked with that we could refer um, victims and survivors of domestic violence that came through our doors and send them to therapy. Mm -hmm. so that way they had someone to talk to. Um, if we needed to provide them with um, assistance or other referrals, we were able to do that as well, and then navigating them through that criminal justice process.
0: Okay, um, so how about with ITBAP? and maybe this is something you will speak about later, um, are those types of services available for the youth through ITBAP?
1: Yes, so, ITVAP itself, we are not a direct service provider, which means I do not work with youth to provide them with counseling. What we do is we partner up with service providers. So here in Tippecanoe County specifically, we work with Bauer Family Resources, We work with Tippecanoe County Youth Services, and we work with Counseling Partners, LLC. So if at any time we have a youth that's identified, and not only in Tippecanoe County, because those agencies serve a lot of the surrounding counties here as well, when we have youth that are identified, and if they need case coordination, case management, therapy, I can do that referral. So that way we can ensure that those youth get into services and so so let's say with counseling partners, if we, we need to get that youth into therapy. Mm-hmm. If they are identified as a trafficked youth and their information is provided to me and I do that referral, it ensures that the youth does not pay for that gotcha. service if that pays for that service for them. Nice. Yes. So, and I, we'll talk about it more later. There are definitely a lot of services that are lacking, but we are proud to say that the partners that we do have in the state are working very hard to provide our survivors and our identified um, youth with the services that they need to the best of their ability.
0: That's so awesome. Yeah. So tell me, what's a typical day like for you? Oh my gosh, um,
1: I wish I had an answer to that. Really?
0: Yeah, so
1: with each of us, and you know, there, there are 10 of us in ITVAP currently, As of October 1st, though, we're adding two more positions, so there will be 12 of us throughout the state, which is really exciting because that means I go from having 11 counties to eight so I can focus more energy in those Mm -hmm. eight counties. Uh, So it's really great for us. Um, We all work in our regions. A lot of us work from home or in satellite offices. So I might have a day where I spend the entire day doing emails and scheduling trainings. And then I may have a day where I spend the entire day on the road, and I've before I've had a day where I was I leaving here, so Tippecanoe County. I drove to. Putnam County, which is about an hour 45 minutes away. I did a two-hour training from there. I drove another 45 minutes to Vigo County, did a two-hour training, and then did the two-hour drive back to Tippecanoe County. So that could be an entire day. Um, Sometimes I go work out of the Indy office because our headquarters is based out of Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's one of those things where just when I start to think I kind of have a, a pattern, a rhythm, mm-hmm. something happens. Uh, because in the midst of scheduling trainings, facilitating trainings, uh, doing meetings with people to talk to them about itVAP and what we do, I might get a call about a case. Mm-hmm. And I might get that call that says, hey, we have an identified youth. We need your help. Or what do we do now? Or wow. this is where we're taking that youth. What can you provide? And so that puts a standstill on everything else that I'm doing right. until that phone call is resolved. So you never know.
0: You, you never Pretty know. It's spontaneous <laughs> It is. Day. It
1: absolutely is. So what I did today, my colleagues may have had a completely different Monday, mm-hmm. but what I do tomorrow... There's no telling. Like, I have a rough outline of what my day looks like tomorrow, but it could change at any minute.
0: Oh, wow. So, like, how do you keep your head straight and, like, I... Work, working at the courthouse, sometimes, like, seeing the people, like, feeling like, I have a heart, a big heart. <laughs> yeah. And, like, by the end of the day, I'm, like, so drained emotionally. Yeah. So how do you keep going, keep driving, keep meeting children in need?
1: Absolutely. So there is a very, there's a lot to be said about what it takes to do this work and being able to see these things and hear these things and talk about really sensitive and uncomfortable topics Mm -hmm. day in and day out and stay positive. And I know that there have been positive reactions to the trainings I've done. I know that people are getting something out of it based on conversations that I'm having. So that in itself is one factor. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel confident in the information that we're putting out there and proud of the information that we're putting out there and the services that we're able to connect youth to. So that's always been very encouraging, and that keeps me going in itself. But as far as, like, you know, when I come home, what do I do at the end of the day? Um, so for the last year... Uh, My fiancé and I foster kittens through the Humane Society. So we foster sick and orphaned kittens. Uh, So I spend a lot of time working, you know, with these cute little kittens, getting them healthy, getting them ready for adoption. So there's kind of that, you know, animal um, support that I have. I can go home and just let a room full of kittens run. And, you know, they distract me a lot. But um, having a really strong support group is probably one of the most important things for everyone's mental health and mental Mm -hmm. well-being so having uh, friends and family that you can go to and then I try and keep somewhat active so this summer I joined a softball league with a bunch of my friends so I spent the summer um, playing softball which was uh, definitely a good distraction Mm -hmm. and then Um, My fiancé's family lives in Carmel, so we spend a lot of time down there. And then you have, like, White River, which kind of runs through that area. So we've, like, gone tubing for a day. And I have kind of find time to sometimes just leave home for a weekend, um, go visit with friends, go visit with family, and kind of immerse myself in that support. That's definitely been helpful. Yeah.
0: And also, I don't know about you, but a good glass of wine. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. oh very much so.
1: <laughs> Definitely. I spent a lot of time at, a, is it Cellar? Yes. Four, two forty something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, on um, Main Street. Right on Main Street with their baked brie. Yeah. Oh, at, that is my yes, favorite. Yes, and their bottles
0: of wine. Yes. Definitely
1: don't mind unwinding there. Yes,
0: yes, yes. <laughs> today, no, today is Monday. Yeah. I was gonna say, is it Wine Wednesday yet? Oh my gosh, we're so close. (laughs)
1: Two days away, we'll be there.
0: (laughs) Well, back to what we're here for. Mm -hmm. What is human trafficking?
1: So in the shortest definition possible, human trafficking is the use of force, threat of force, fraud, or coercion to compel a person into any form of work or service and human trafficking is typically broken down um, into either commercial sexual conduct, so sex trafficking or labor trafficking, so labor services. And that's like at its most ba- baseline foundational level. It's, it's using force, threat of force, fraud or coercion to compel another human being mm-hmm. to engage in commercial sexual conduct or labor services.
0: Okay. Um I remember a little about um children mm-hmm. not being able to consent, but I can't yes. remember like the exact language. Yes,
1: absolutely. I'm really I'm really glad that you remembered that because it's a really important piece to Indiana law and it's not just Indiana. There are a lot of other states that have adapted this law and it's something we need to ensure that every state is working to adapt this law. When it comes to sex trafficking, um, so like I said, human trafficking, it's that force, threat of force, fraud, or coercion. Anyone under the age of 18 who is engaging in sex trafficking, so that sexual exploitation, that commercial sexual conduct, there does not need to be force, fraud, threat of force, or coercion proven to identify that youth as being a victim of human trafficking and the reason is is like you said consent. Anyone under the age of 18 cannot legally consent to any form of commercial sexual conduct. What that means in kind of a real-world scenario is if you're working with a youth who is 16
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you're investigating human trafficking and you sit down with this youth and you start to talk to them about what in a in the world that we are in would say is exploitation, they may say, no, it's prostitution. Uh, you know, This is what I want to do, and this is a 16-year-old saying this, this is what I want to do, no one forced me, no one made me do this, this is my choice, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. They could be sitting there with a bullhorn yelling from the top of the library, I wanted to do this. If they are not 18, they legally cannot consent to that act. So it's really important when we're working on this issue, keeping in mind that sex trafficking applies to anyone under the age of 18, regardless of they're coming in and saying that they're consenting to it, and they don't feel like they're being exploited, and they don't identify as a victim. Mm-hmm. Because they can't consent, they need to be identified as a victim of human trafficking for service purposes.
0: So then... What is the difference, or is there a difference between human trafficking and prostitution
1: absolutely there there's definitely a difference and it's again it 's that um, consent mm-hmm. so when we 're talking about the sex industry and that can be anything from prostitution, as we imagine it, it can be stripping um, lap dances, exotic lounges adult stores, anything like that, anything that falls within the sex industry. If you are over the age of 18, you have to be consenting to that act. You have to be consenting to that work. Mm -hmm. For someone over the age of 18, in order to meet the definition of sex trafficking, There needs to be that force, that threat of force, that fraud or that coercion. And what that means is force, we're looking more so at physical aggression. So we're looking at assault, oftentimes that sexual assault, not just physical assault. So it can be rape, it can be gang rape. When we're talking about fraud, we're a lot of times, and we see this both in labor trafficking and sex trafficking, that is Threats are intimidation, so we go outside of force being actually acting on that physical aggression to fraud being That threat and intimidation is enough to make someone to compel someone to do that work okay. um, It's that threat it's that intimidation a long time. It's that emotional and, and mental manipulation It's saying if you don't do this I can hurt your family. Mm-hmm. I know where your family lives. That's a tactic that we often see, but we also see um, false or fictitious. I want to make sure I said that right. So you go from force, you go into coercion, and coercion is that threats, that intimidation. I think I misspoke. I apologize. It's that threats, that intimidation, that mental and emotional abuse. From there, we go into fraud. Fraud is where we're going to see that false or fictic- fictitious documents. So like coercion, we also see fraud a lot with labor trafficking and sex trafficking. So that would be someone who maybe is being brought into the United States Mm -hmm. for the purpose of work. They are provided with documentation that upon arrival, it's either taken for them and they no longer have access to their documentation, or upon arrival are told that it's fictitious, so even if they wanted to go to the police, they don't have the correct documentation and they're going to be the one that gets in trouble. So that's that's a tactic that's used. um, With sex trafficking and fraud, we are sometimes seeing false promises of the work itself. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, We're seeing tactics that are being used um, for traffickers, for recruiters, where they're engaging with youth, saying, do you want to be a model? Do you want to be in a music video? Mm -hmm. You're beautiful. I can make you a star. Mm -hmm. And so it's this promise of one type of work to get them somewhere. And then once they get there, that's not at all what they've signed up for. Um, But at the end of the day what we have to remember is when it comes to someone over the age of 18 for sex trafficking or any age for labor trafficking that force, that fraud, that coercion, that threat of force, what that means is based on what was happening to them, whether that be physically, mentally, emotionally, sexually, they did not feel they could walk away for their own Mm. safety, for the safety of their family they did not feel they could walk away from the situation. And that's where we meet human trafficking.
0: I'll take a pause right now, Morgan. If any connectors out there and maybe just identified, self-identified as being a survivor Mm -hmm. or victim of human trafficking, where should they seek help? Um, What should they do?
1: Absolutely. So if we are specifically speaking about someone under the age of 18, and you do not suspect imminent danger. Imminent meaning you feel you need to call 911, your local police, immediately. Um, which, if you suspect someone's in imminent danger, please call 911. But if you're working with someone under the 18, or you're thinking about someone that's under 18, that you do not suspect is an imminent danger, please call the DCS hotline number. And that's going to be 1-800-800-5556. And that's 1-800-800-5556. That's the hotline number. And we ask you to please say, I suspect human trafficking. Because what that does is that ensures that a human trafficking assessment is done upon contact with that youth. If you are over the age of 18, or you are thinking of someone over the age of 18, and again, you do not suspect imminent life-threatening danger, we ask that you please call the National Human Trafficking Hotline for assistance. And that number is one 3737 888 And that's one 3737 888 That's the National Human Trafficking Hotline number. Or you can also text HELP or INFO to 233-733.
0: All right. And please, if you suspect anyone, even yourself, please reach out to these contact numbers. And Morgan, um, please tell us then, how can we identify human trafficking?
1: Okay, so to identify, um, there's a lot that goes into identifying. Mm -hmm. um, And that's a big part of why education is so important around this issue. And I encourage you to either educate yourself or seek out an organization Um, like ITVAP and we can come and, and facilitate that training and that education for you. The reason I say that is because in order to identify trafficking we're often looking at a lot of things that go into it because we need to understand what human trafficking is, we need to understand why people are vulnerable to trafficking, especially when we're talking about youth, right? So it, that being part of Indiana Youth Service Association, we focus on youth 21 and under. So when we're talking about trafficking, we're often talking about our, our population of youth. So understanding what trafficking is, understanding why people are vulnerable, what makes them vulnerable, understanding the industries that are vulnerable, understanding connections that a victim might have to their trafficker because it goes so far beyond the idea of the pimp model, which is what we're really primarily seeing um, both in the headlines and media, but also in Hollywood, the way that it's talked about and the way it's presented, we're oftentimes seeing that pimp model, which it's not to say that that's not very real and that's not a very real part of human trafficking, but there's a lot of connections that a victim and trafficker might have that go far beyond that. So understanding that it goes beyond that PIMP model, understanding Indiana law and what counts as human trafficking, understanding the red flags and what to look for when encountering youth and something doesn't sit right in your gut, so what do you need to be looking for? And all of those things combined are what is going to be able to help our communities actually identify this issue.
0: Okay. yeah um, you you just said um, red flags yes um, it was going to be a question a little bit later, yeah. but since she brought it up, what are some of the most important human trafficking red flags?
1: okay so there are a, a number of them um, that we have entire handouts that are, is an entire you know eight and a half by eleven piece of paper mm-hmm. that has red flags written on them um, but some things to be aware of when encountering youth, and this goes for adults as well, um, who you suspect may be at risk of exploitation or or in a trafficking situation. Uh, For youth, we're looking at chronic runaway or homelessness, so youth who uh, might be displaced, um, and that could be because of things going on at home. You know, they're runaway, they're, they're identifying as homeless. That's definitely a red flag. Branding and that can be branding in the form of tattoos, it can also be jewelry. Mm. Um, We're also looking at youth who have an excessive amount of cash or material goods that they typically wouldn't be able to afford. So, you're uh, you know, we're talking about a youth who doesn't have a job Mm -hmm. but they have three cell phones Mm. that they're constantly looking at constantly responding to um so things or material goods that kind of knowing um, about that youth maybe knowing their family situation their economic situation um they wouldn't be able to afford you know new hair new nails new clothes Mm -hmm. new bags new purses they have three cell phones, so an excess amount of things that um, just don't really add up for how they got it or if you're speaking to them about how they came into possession of those things, they can't tell you Mm. where they got them. Um, We're also looking at youth who have a lack of, lack of, oh my gosh, a lack of knowledge of their whereabouts. That was a tongue twister, sorry. (laughs) Lack of knowledge of their whereabouts. Mm -hmm. So maybe they're not familiar with the area or they can't really tell you where they've been or where they're going. They might just have a regional idea, oh, I'm somewhere in the Midwest, but they can't tell you what state Mm, you're in. They can't tell you um, what city they're in, where they've been. That's something we definitely want to be on the lookout for. Scripted or restricted communication. Um, What that means is if you are speaking with a youth who you can ask them, essentially the same question four different ways, but every single time it's the same answer. It's like it's rehearsed. Mm -hmm. It's a rehearsed answer. Mm -hmm. Or if you ask them a question, but they have an older adult with them, and that could be someone they identify as being an intimate partner, an older boyfriend, an older girlfriend, um, an uncle that's with them. Either way, it's someone else with them that whenever you ask them a question, they defer to the person that they're with. They don't answer any of your questions. They let someone else answer the questions for them. And so that's just a couple. We have many, many red flags that we train wow. on, but those are definitely some of the ones that I think are a little bit um, easier. You know, say you're coming out of a grocery store, and you're you know going to your car, and you see something suspicious, and that might. Those are just a, a couple of the things that you might be able to just identify really quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah. Well, I heard in your answer just now, um, an older girlfriend mm-hmm. implying that the trafficker is a woman. Mm -hmm. And I know for myself, I always think either the trafficking situation is abroad, Mm -hmm. um, which you dispelled earlier, and that the trafficker is a male. Um, What are some other (laughs) um, myths out there that maybe you can dispel now? Absolutely. Um,
1: So like you pointed out, Human trafficking is not only an issue in other countries, it's very much so an issue here, um, Mm -hmm. which we talked about earlier. So we know that we have human trafficking going on, not just in the United States, but definitely in Indiana as well. So that's one myth. Um, Another myth is that it can only happen to young girls. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that young females don't make up a very large percentage of the number of youth who have been identified. However, trafficking can affect anyone of any age, any gender, any race, any sexual orientation. It does not, essentially, trafficking does not discriminate. Mm -hmm. Um, If there is an opportunity for a trafficker and there's a demand for a specific type of person,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: they'll find them. Um, And so that's something you want to be very aware of, is that as a victim, trafficking can affect anyone. Um, a trafficker can also look far beyond that idea of the pimp model. And the pimp model we also often see, sometimes we see pimp and intimate partner. Mm-hmm. Um, what we would identify as being pimp, they might identify as being an intimate partner, so a boyfriend or a girlfriend. So going into that, a trafficker doesn't just have to be a male. A trafficker can be a male or a female. We definitely see that which is hard because we don't want to imagine that, but it's a very real Mm -hmm. thing that we're dealing with. Um, One of the other important things to note going off of that idea of the pimp model, I said that it's definitely a very real aspect of trafficking, but it's by no means the only part of trafficking, uh, the only connection that a, a victim and a trafficker might have is that pimp model. A study was done that found 91% of youth who identified their trafficker identified that trafficker as being someone who had a relationship with them. So the largest percentage being immediate family, which is really, really hard to talk about and to kind of digest that information. From there, we go into that intimate partner. From intimate partner, we go into friends of family. We go into employers. And then that smaller percentage is often going to be the stranger, um, which we do see a lot of the pimp model being categorized within that stranger. So they have no immediate connection to their trafficker other than their pimp.
0: Wow. Yeah. Because, I mean, what I, when I think Mm -hmm. of human trafficking cases, I think someone was kidnapped and the trafficker, mm-hmm. they don't know each other, but you're saying like almost the exact opposite that most cases they do know yeah. the trafficker. Yeah,
1: absolutely, there is there is often, more often than not, some sort of connection between a victim and a trafficker and a lot of that has to do with gaining trust um, because we get that question of a lot, a lot is, how can this happen to someone? Mm-hmm. Um, especially when the way we see it portrayed or the way we've heard about trafficking is that idea of someone being kidnapped. I call it the stranger danger model, right. um, mm-hmm. where basically you have a youth walking down their, you know, the sidewalk on their way home, and someone pulls up next to them, and they're grabbed, and they're never to be seen again. Mm-hmm. That's not to say it doesn't happen. There are absolutely cases where it's the most extreme. More often than not, though, we are encountering youth who may even still be living at home, they may still be going to school. They may be, by all accounts, leading a normal life. They're going. They're involved in this, that, you know, they have friends. We see that too, but based on our definitions of human trafficking and keeping in mind that, you know, someone under the age of 18 doesn't have to have that force, that fraud, that coercion, that threat of force, they can be leading a seemingly normal life to everyone on the outside looking in. And you totally miss the exploitation that they're experiencing when wow. they leave school that day. Wow. Yeah, so that's there's definitely a lot to be said about why education is so important on this topic and mm-hmm. why familiarizing yourself with some of the real-world elements of this issue and what we're encountering in the cases that we're being called in on, um, because that's what we're seeing. What we've found in specific to ITVAP and there are plenty of other organizations within the state that do education and and provide um, referrals and things like that, ITVAP specifically, from the time we got up and running in October of 2015 to now August of 2018, we're seeing a direct correlation between the education information on this issue that's getting out into our communities and the number of calls that are going into the hotline. So from... 2014, before IVAP was created, mm-hmm. um, the, and that's the Players Project National Human Trafficking Hotline number, that's the number I gave, um, that one 88 37 number. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2014, for the state of Indiana specifically, there were 186 calls that were made to the hotline number, and those are specific, you know, human trafficking concerns, uh, questions, I think someone's being exploited, right? Mm-hmm. That type of call. 186 in 2014. By 2017, there were 283 calls made in just the state of Indiana to that hotline number. Jeez. Yeah, so between 2014 and 2015, I don't have the 2015 number in front of me right now. There was an article that was posted, and I believe there was a 36% increase between 2014 and 2015 in the calls that were made to the hotline number. So we're we're getting that information out there. Mm but we're definitely, we're definitely seeing that that education is key to being able to address this issue, identify this issue, and combat this issue.
0: So then where does Indiana stand? So I currently, I
1: don't, I can't tell you on a, like I could with IYSA, you know, where we ranked on all 50 states, but what I can tell you is between, you know, those hotline numbers that are going in, ITVAP service partners, and those are the YSBs and then service partners that we've um, partnered up with along the way, which in the entire state of, of Indiana, there are under 50 ITVAP service partners, and that's including ITVAP staff, so RCCs. There are under 50, so less than 50 organizations in a 92-county state that provides services to traffic-exploited and high-risk youth ITVAP service partners have worked with over 370 youth since October of 2015. So they're there. And one of the most interesting elements to going out and speaking on this issue is doing these trainings, especially when we're working with service providers, and being able to give all this information, and then asking, okay, think back on some cases that you've worked. Think back on some youth that you've interacted with. Mm do you now think that you've worked with a youth who should have been identified as trafficked and most of the time someone will nod their head in the crowd and go, yeah, I've worked with someone and we just had no idea.
0: Oh my. Yeah. Well. (laughs) I, it's like, I, my heart goes out to those children because it just seems, especially because you said like, it's family, mm-hmm. um, someone they have a relationship with, like more, more than likely they've grown up in this type of environment, mm-hmm. I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, and so that's such a, uh, an important thing to note about this. Um, when we're talking about trafficking of youth within a family or their trafficker as a family member, there's some really important elements to remember about that. First, being I want to make sure I like, collect my thoughts on this. Um, first and foremost, there I'm sure have been a lot of cases where something else was identified. So whether that be abuse, neglect, maybe sexual misconduct that wasn't identified as trafficking, mm-hmm. but could have been if the knowledge had been there. Um, So that's not to say that all of these kids are completely unseen. There can definitely be some other elements of system involvement going on. Um, One of the things really important to note about Indiana, though, is as a state, we're classifying ourselves as being in the midst of an opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of numbers out there. There's a lot of data out there that shows that usage is going up. There are more um, fatalities as a result of opioid usage. it seems like every time I open you know, the news mm. sites or mm-hmm. look at something going on within Indiana, that's a headline that I see. Mm-hmm. It is not unheard of for individuals like myself working in this field to get calls about youth who there is an element of opioid usage involved in their exploitation. So, exchanging a child for drugs. Exchanging a child for money to then take that money to get drugs. That is unfortunately a very real thing that we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I always really uh, want to point out is, similar to domestic violence, there is a cycle when it comes to sexual abuse and even human trafficking. What that means is when we're encountering a case when we're encountering a youth who's being trafficked by a family member and there's sexual misconduct going on and there's sexual exploitation going on we need to ask ourselves what is going on under that roof that made this an acceptable behavior Mm -hmm. and a lot of times when we start looking back we see that there's a cycle Mm -hmm. and maybe the parents or maybe the uncle or maybe the cousin was being sexually abused when they were younger and because they weren't identified, because they didn't understand that it was wrong and that they should disclose to somebody and tell somebody. And there's a lot of reasons that go into that, that play into that. If we're looking at individuals who have experienced that type of sexual misconduct or their own sexual exploitation, and they never had the services to get them help, and that became a normal behavior for them, we're often seeing the kids go through it too because it's something the adult experiences as a child, and therefore they then become, and it's like domestic violence. A child who sees it in the home has a higher chance of becoming Mm -hmm. an abuser themselves. and we see that with sexual exploitation of children and sexual misconduct of children, children who are being sexually abused and they don't have those services and they don't have, those support systems Mm -hmm. where they can get help, they then have a high chance of becoming sexual abusers themselves. And it's a very sad part of it, Mm -hmm. um, especially when we're talking about that it's very easy, I think, to jump to villainizing someone and going, oh my gosh, how could you ever do this? To a child, which is valid. Mm -hmm. However, we have to remember to take a step back and ask ourselves, well, did something happen to them as a child that they may not be fully aware of why this is as big of an issue as it is, why this is unacceptable as it is. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's something that we work hard to educate on and try and make sure that we are cognizant mm-hmm. of that cycle that people may be stuck in without ever realizing that they're stuck in it.
0: So um, I will assume then that ITVAP or IYSA mm-hmm. um, helps to break that cycle? We work with service providers who who tackle inter- that, yeah. yeah,
1: um because a lot of times, if we're talking about trafficking that's happening within a family that's that's happening under a roof, we will try and make sure that the you know d c s offices in that area are educated so that way we know you know remove that child if it's something that's going on within a family. Maybe we need to place that child outside of an immediate family member mm-hmm. or with a family member that you can confirm has had no knowledge of this and work to ensure that that youth is getting into counseling and therapy. That's mm-hmm. something that we really want to make sure is, is a tool that's available to these kids. Mm-hmm. Is And because when talking about this type of exploitation and the trauma that goes into it, Oftentimes, trauma that they don't even understand, mm-hmm. we need to make sure that we're working with counselors and therapists that are trained specifically on how to handle trauma and um, in, in human trafficking-specific trauma. So we're very fortunate that we partner with counseling agencies, that we, as part of our service partners, do specific trauma-informed trauma informed Therapy training with to mm-hmm. ensure that they have best practices when working with these youth. Nice. Yeah. Nice.
0: Oh, this is kind of heavy. It is. It's it's
1: absolutely a very heavy topic. It uh, it can be it can be difficult to listen to. It can be mm-hmm. very difficult to talk about. But uh, it's it's important. So it's it's heavy, but someone's got to do it. Yes.
0: So what's one of your favorite aspects of being a coalition coordinator for ITVAP? Without a doubt,
1: for me, it's being out in the community and educating. Um, It's something I'm really passionate about. It's something I really enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. So being able to have that knowledge and take it into the communities that I'm working in within my region and speak to them about what to look for, how to identify it, how to report it. Um, That is the best part for me Um, Mm -hmm. in that element of the job. And then I'm also very fortunate that ITVAP itself, I'm working with a group of people who are just as passionate about this issue. So when you can get all of us in a room Mm -hmm. together and talk about some you know a great end result to a case that we were called in on or a great training that we did and the conversation that and the dialogue that happened because of that training um it's very encouraging yeah. um I would say though I'm thinking about it more and I'm like my all-time favorite aspect favorite moment of this job is when I go in and do a training, and then someone comes up to me afterwards and goes, I need to talk to you. Because I know that at least I've gotten the information out there and it's resonated with someone Mm -hmm. that they not only took in that information, but they actively wanted to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And so being able to go out and facilitate that and then have someone come up and go, I heard what you said. I understand what you're saying. Now, what can I do? That's the—that's how we move forward in this issue, and being able to be part of that is uh, something very special.
0: Well, that's how we met. <laughs> yes, it is. I feel very special for having you. So, thank you again. Oh Thank you. All right. So, whew, now <laughs> we can kind of exhale a little yeah. bit and do something. This is one of my favorite parts of the show, and it's called. Who in the world, Mm. where in the world, Mm -hmm. and how in the world? Okay. So that's who in the world inspires you to be the person you are today? Where in the world would you like to travel, maybe with those people, Mm -hmm. or perhaps you travel to those people or person? Mm -hmm. And how in the world do you give back to your community to show gratitude to the people? That inspire you, or the person who inspired yeah. you?
1: Yeah. So that is a huge question. Yes. Um, and what was really interesting, and um, I found that this was actually a very reflective exercise for mm-hmm. me, was starting with who in the world? Mm-hmm. Um, because I definitely have those people that inspire me, and just right off the bat, I I'm looking at people like Tamara Burke, the creator of the. Me Too. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at Ruth Bader Ginsburg, known for being an absolutely incredible Supreme Court justice. But before she got there, she was once lead counsel for the ACLU Women's Rights Project, which worked to fight to end sex discrimination and work towards gender equality. Mm -hmm. And then also someone like Malala, Yusuf, I always heard it as Yusuf, but Thank it's you. like Yusuf Zayt. So no, I didn't say it right, yeah, I'm so I so apologize. <laughs> um, who has fought for women's rights to education in places like Pakistan. And so I was thinking about that, and those are the people that come, you know, right off the top of my mind. Like, And I noticed that there was a pattern, and it's really strong, really confident, vocal women. Yes. And so I was kind of sitting there thinking... Well, in order to get there, Mm -hmm. in order to look to people like that who are having such an impact on our society and on our culture and acknowledging them, how at 26 years old, this little girl from Jacksonville, Florida, how did I find them to be my inspiration? Mm -hmm. And it took me back and I was like, okay, well, I know point B, where was point A for me? And... On a personal scale, without a doubt, my mom. And that's both my mom and my dad. But, you know, my mom going in that strong women mm-hmm. role. Um, but both my parents who sacrificed so much to send me to the best goals, to give me the best opportunities. Um, you know, I, I come from a blue-collar, middle-class family. And just being able to reflect on where I am now and all the opportunities I had that I wouldn't have had had it not been for the support that they gave me. Um, and my mom is one of the most selfless, big-hearted, loving people. Mm-hmm. And so she has always been my, my number one cheerleader. But it was funny because I was sitting at home. I was thinking about this question because I knew it was a question you were going to ask. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about it and I was kind of reading it off to my fiance. And I was like, I feel like I'm missing something. I feel like there's just one piece of the puzzle that I haven't clicked yet. My fiance just looked at me and goes, how in the world can you talk about the people that inspire you and not talk about your grandmother? Because, and I didn't even realize I do it, but whenever I talk about my childhood, whenever I talk about influences in my life or big moments in my life, I always seem to go back to my grandma mm -hmm. and I don't even realize it. So I think between my mom and her mom, my my grandmother, I have these very strong female role models in my life and, and my grandma, I just have to brag on her for Go just ahead. a minute. Go ahead, it's um, your time. She, and I won't <laughs> say her age, but um, she has been the definition of just this elegant woman my entire life. Um, when she was younger, raising four kids, she, was also a model while supporting, you know, raising four kids wow. while my grandfather was out on the road for business. He was a traveling um, electrical engineering salesman. It, huh. Wild. Um, <laughs> but he was gone Monday through Friday. And so my grandma worked the entire time though. She was a model. She was a, an etiquette teacher mm-hmm. at a university in okay. Jacksonville where she taught, I kind of break it down as like cotillion before yeah. you had Casillion, Where you put your fork. Where you put your, your fork, how you carry yourself, how you speak to people. Um, and then her passion has always been horses. And for most of her life, she showed Palomino Quarter horses. Oh, and I always cool. knew that. And I always knew that she was pretty impressive with what she did. And I was recently home. I visited uh, my family earlier this summer and we're driving, you know, the the, Property that my family lives on. So my parents, my grandparents also live there as well. My aunt lives there, just kind of with a three in, mile radius. Is... No, within like a property line. Oh, yeah, my better. family, my family cool. lives, um, and it's it's wonderful. And I I had that support system my entire life, which I'm so fortunate for. But we were driving past one of the barns, and I noticed all this stuff up in the barn that I hadn't seen before. Mm -hmm. And so I made my mom, like, kind of go over, and I got out, and my my pop had gone through... It's my grandfather, my pop. Had gone through the attic. Uh Uh-huh. And pulled out all of these trophies and awards and accolades that my grandmother had won during her career. And it was only some of them. Like, it wasn't even all of them. And it covered, like, a third of the barn. Oh, wow. So she was legendary within this horse showing realm and the entire time that she was doing that she followed her dreams she knew what she was passionate about she knew what she stood for Mm -hmm. and the entire time she exuded elegance and grace and love Mm -hmm. and so from a very young age I between my mom and my dad but Mm -hmm. my mom and my grandma and my aunts I was surrounded by strong women who have never been afraid to push themselves, to follow their dreams, and to speak their mind. Yes. And without a doubt, starting from that home level to then get to people like Tamara Burke, and Malala, yeah. and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Like, yes. I see yes, yes. how I got from point A to point B. Yes. Yeah, so those are the who, who
0: in the world. I mean, oh, I should just say, like when I met you, I that's what I saw in you from that that day, I was like, this is a strong woman. Thank you, oh my gosh, it's the nicest compliment. This is a strong woman who knows what she's talking about, who's passionate about something that's not herself, who's helping the world, so you got that. Truly the nicest
1: compliment, thank you so much. That's
0: so nice. All right, so we got who in the world,
1: where we going? Where are we going? So, individually, uh, I'm going to take my mom to Italy because right. she's always wanted to go there and she wants to go to Tuscany, okay. so mom and I are going to take a trip to Italy. Um, my grandma is from New York. Um, she moved to Georgia when she was fairly young, but her like childhood, she distinctly remembers being in New York. She, in fact, remembers she lived in an apartment overlooking the Bronx Zoo I believe oh. so I would go to New York with her and I would just kind of follow her and like let her oh, just
0: it just mosey
1: and talk and I would kind of want to see New York through her eyes um, if I'm talking like our notorious R.V.G. I mm-hmm. I'd be sitting there watching from ah. from the room, just kind of watching it happen. I um, so I would go to her. Yes. Um, same with with Malala to be able to uh, sit in a room and hear her speak. And then I'm really excited about Tamara Burt because she's coming to Purdue. Really in, next month. Yeah, okay. and and there's an event going on here, and she's going to be here to speak, and I am going. So I'll be coming yes. to Purdue to hear yes, her yes. speak. So yes.
0: Cool. So we're going all over the place. Mm -hmm. Italy, I really want to visit. My friend goes, like, every year she goes to Como for a retreat. And it is so delicious to look at. I've been to Rome once,
1: and it was incredible. (laughs) It was absolutely amazing.
0: So jealous. All right. And besides the work you're doing Mm -hmm. today Mm -hmm. by coming out and speaking to people like myself and the Connectors. How do you give back to your community to show appreciation to the people, your mom, your grandma, and those other strong women?
1: Um, And your dad, of course. And my dad, of course.
0: He's lovely, he's wonderful, he's Mm -hmm. awesome.
1: Next to my mom, he's also my number one cheerleader.
0: Hey, dad. Uh, Hey, dad. (laughs) Um,
1: I stand up for what I believe in and Right now, I may not have done anything that is grandiose in that aspect, but I do not shy away from if I see something, if I hear something that's not okay, addressing it. Mm -hmm. Um, I look at it as I come from very much so a place of privilege, and I acknowledge that. Um, And so if I have the opportunity to speak up on an issue I need to. Mm-hmm. And that's what I do to honor to honor my inspirations is when I see something that's not okay, I speak up about it. And I'm I'm vocal because if it needs to be said, there needs to be someone to say it. And I think in a lot of a lot of situations and a lot of things and injustice that we're seeing now, mm-hmm. people don't always have the opportunity to speak up. And so I recognize that where i 'm coming from, which is often a place of, of privilege, mm-hmm. um, that I have a duty to do that, and so that 's something I really I try to do and I'm, I'm constantly learning and i 'm constantly growing, and I think that's something else that I do is um, while I may be out of school i've been out of, of school for going on it'll be three years in January, but um, I'm still trying to learn. I'm constantly trying to learn. I'm constantly trying to better myself and just be the best person I could be and, and be the person that my my parents and my my grandma sees. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I try and live up to what they see in me and be as proud of myself as they are.
0: It's great to hear that someone who does this type of work is also willing to step outside of that work and recognize and speak out against other injustices of the world. So I thank you for that. Well, thank you. you. I'm trying. I'm
1: constantly learning. Uh, And it's one of those things where I look back on situations where I could have spoken up years ago, but I didn't understand how to. I didn't have the tools to. And that's just something that, along with my, the job I had before this, the job I have now, the being aware of what's going on around me, um, learning how to be better and why it's important to speak up on those For sure, issues, yeah.
0: What do you hope to see changed in the next year?
1: So within the next year, I would really love to see more services available to individuals who have experienced exploitation and trafficking, um, those who are affected have a wide variety of needs that range from emergency shelter to medical care to counseling to legal assistance, and then going into things like vocational training, life skills training, job training, um, support groups, and the list goes on and on. And while we know that these are needs that they have, while we know that these are areas where they need assistance, mm-hmm. we are uh, lacking in the ability to provide a lot of those things. and. You know, I, I said with um, with itvap we work at least I think I said it we work with youth 21 and under. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the services that are available, well, across the board, we definitely need more of everything. Most of the services are directed towards youth. But you, we have that 18 to 21 age range that we serve that we often have a really hard time finding services for.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I would really like to see more organizations and agencies get involved mm-hmm. and look at what they have to offer. So um, I was saying, you know, one of the best parts of this job is finishing a training and having someone come up to me and say, okay, I recognize what you're saying, what can I do? to take that a step further, to do these trainings, be in an office, an agency, an organization, and have the collective group afterwards go, well, what can we do? What can our agency do? That is just the first step in getting those services out there is them being able to recognize what they offer and then understanding how they can, even if it's one therapist who they wanna have trained on trauma-informed, you know, narrative therapy, we can offer that to them. We can, we can assist them with that if they're a service partner and we go through that step with us and, um, you know, with them and get them part of it and, and get them helping. Um, and so being able to kind of use that trickle effect where we come in and train, they see that they have a part to play, they want to know what they can do. Mm-hmm. And then from there, they're continuing to take that into their community and going, hey, we did this training, we're a service partner, Here's what we're providing. You know, we're providing therapy. I know y'all do case management. Have you thought about working with trafficked youth? And it's kind of that effective, sometimes it's the domino effect, where you get one person really, really interested, and then all of a sudden an entire community can come together. So that service, I would love to see more services.
0: So what about um, for an individual? Mm -hmm. Like, I've heard it before, like, I don't know what I can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I may spot or I may see the red flags, but as an individual, what can I do to help in in human trafficking?
1: So, and that's such a great question, because you mentioned that you see the red flags and you can report a lot of times. That's the most important thing that you as an individual can do. It's that you see something, say something, idea. Something doesn't sit right in your gut, and just making that call can truly save someone's life. Mm-hmm. Worst case scenario, you make a call, say it's to DCS. DCS makes contact with that youth, with that family. They say nothing's wrong, and, they, and it's done. But at least you've had someone go and check on that child that you're concerned about. Um, So just making that call in itself is vital. Um, I would say, in addition, as an individual, if you are passionate about this issue, um, speak to someone who maybe does community forums and say, I can't be the only one in this community that cares about this issue. If there are laws or policies that you want to see change, write into your legislators and be aware of what laws we currently have and what we could have. Um, See what some of the model states are doing and maybe what we have, what we don't have, what we're talking about trying to do and just being aware of it. Um, And a lot of times it really does come down to someone being really passionate about this issue and wanting to bring it to their communities and something that we see is Indiana, you do certainly have larger cities, but a lot of Indiana is rural, very small towns. Mm -hmm. Very small towns where everyone knows each other, which is great in a lot of ways, but it can be hard for new faces to come in there. And so when you have one person in those small communities that cares about this issue, they have the potential to kind of rally the forces and get Mm -hmm. an entire community on board. Mm -hmm. Um, And just those little steps and bringing this education to your community being aware of it, knowing or kind of providing information of, hey, I think this was really interesting. Have you ever talked to Adult Protective Services? Have you ever been able to get into the DCS office here? Have you talked to the local counseling organization we have? And kind of getting, getting those people mm-hmm. rallied and, and involved in wanting to help.
0: Um, you just said Adult Protective Services. Mm-hmm. And so not to confuse Child Protective Services right. because adults as well as children can be victims.
1: Absolutely. Going back to trafficking victims and, and survivors, it can be any age. You can have really small children that are victims, and you can have elderly people that are being victimized. You know, there's there's a lot that goes into what makes a trafficker choose someone or what they're looking for so being connected not just with DCS but adult protective services as well and making sure that they're aware because even if it's even if we're not talking elderly we're also talking 18 to 21 mm-hmm. well a lot of times one of the kind of vulnerable populations that isn't often mentioned are are people with disabilities hmm. or people who are considered handicapped in some way that are having difficulty getting into services or there are some issues around their support system they can be victimized wow. um, and so just it's it, it's that mentality that takes the village no single organization can combat this issue it takes the entire community to be involved and to be vocal Why? because by bringing everyone together and being aware of this issue and wanting to combat this issue, the ultimate goal, right, for the state of Indiana, the ultimate goal is to make this a state where traffickers know they cannot get away with this. Yes. They're going to be caught, they're going to be prosecuted, they are not going to be able to continue this behavior. Yes. And while in we're doing really great work, there's 10 of us across the entire state it takes a village. We need our communities to come together and recognize that we're here to educate, we're here to assist, but we can't do it all ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's what those coalitions are for, that's what those networks are for. And just one individual be caring about this issue mm-hmm. and wanting this issue brought to the attention of their community can get us to our final goal, mm-hmm. which is traffickers knowing that they can't be here and get away
0: with it. No, you cannot. Yes. And yes, you will be caught. Um, and you mentioned earlier about like different laws. Mm -hmm. Um, we have about 11 weeks until November 6th. Mm -hmm. Um, are there any laws on the ballot that we should be looking towards? So I am
1: not aware of any that are currently up. Um, I know there was a lot that went down this past legislative session, which was, which, which was great. um, for the first time, Indiana, before we had kind of a blanket um, law on human trafficking. As of July 1st, we were actually able to separate human trafficking, like sex trafficking and labor trafficking, into two separate laws, which was huge. That's really, really important for being able to identify and prosecute. Um, So that was really big. Up until July 1st, we, the state of Indiana, did not use the term coercion. We, in our definition, used force fraud or threat of force and we have now added coercion which is really great language to have in there because yes. that's um, it allows us to look more in cases where there's not so much that physical or sexual aggression that's happening mm-hmm. um, but being able to use that term coercion which is that mental it's that mm-hmm. intimidation it's those threats of harm um, that's really, really important language. So we're really excited about that. We've updated some CHEN's designations for DCS, which was really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, Indiana's really working to get uh, get up to date with the laws and, and making sure that we have the language we need to not only prosecute traffickers, but to also protect victims and provide services for them. and One of the things that I think was super, super important that was passed and went into effect this July um, was language that said for buyers. Um, Up until this year, it was required, I believe, that buyers had to know the person that they were engaging in services with was trafficked, Mm. and they removed that language. So buyers no longer have to be aware that the person they are soliciting for commercial sexual conduct or um, exploiting for labor is a victim of of trafficking, Um, just the fact that they're involved in it, they can be held accountable, which is
0: huge. Yes. Very, very important. Wow. That's comforting. It is. Very, very, very much so. That, you know, Indiana is trying Mm -hmm. to end this horrible, horrible crime.
1: And we have some really incredible um, representatives and senators who are working very hard to make sure that we have good laws, strong laws, um, that will allow us to do just that. And it's prosecute traffickers, hold buyers accountable, um, and also have services for for victims. So we're very fortunate.
0: Well, this is surely when we, when you had that presentation about a month ago. Mm-hmm. Wow, it definitely opened my eyes. So I hope the connectors here know a little bit more about human trafficking, and that they just don't turn a blind eye or close their yeah. ears, <laughs> um, because it is an issue that is present here in the states. And could be someone that we know. Mm-hmm. Um any last words, any stories you want to share or have time to share? So I would say given
1: the nature of our work, there's often not a lot of like stories that we can tell because we're you know we're talking about cases involving youth. Um but kind of to reiterate something I said earlier, um being able to go out and do this work and, and do this type of education, have people actively want to be part of combating this issue and want to know what next steps they can take either as an individual or as part of their organization um, to you know make sure we're addressing this issue in our communities is really, really encouraging. Um, and then just if you suspect you know someone or if you yourself Um, have self-identified in any way or you suspect someone has been trafficked or exploited or there's a situation that's just not sitting right um, in your gut, please call those those numbers and I'm happy to repeat those. Please do. Please do. Okay. So if you suspect imminent danger, please call 911 immediately. If you suspect potential exploitation or trafficking and the individual you are calling about is under 18, please call the DCS hotline and say, I suspect human trafficking. And that number is 1-800-800-5556. And if you suspect potential exploitation or trafficking and the individual is over the age of 18, you can call the National Human Trafficking hotline number, which is 1-888-3737-888 or you can text help or info to two three three seven three three, 733 And then if you have questions for me, you can always contact me as well.
0: Okay, how can the connectors connect with you?
1: So my email is m for Morgan, Bo, B-O-W, at Indy, I-N-D-Y, S-B, as in boy, dot org. My number is 317-214-0905. If you would like more information about ITVAP and the work we do, you can go to www.indysb, Again, that's www.indysb.org. Once you get to the site, you can select the tab that says Human Trafficking, and that will tell you more about our program, who we are, what we do, and um, each regional contact coordinator for every county in the state. All of our information is on there as well. Um, so yeah, that is the best way to get in touch with us.
0: All right, then, Morgan, thank you so much. Thank you. And connectors, you know how to connect with me on my website, ampsconnected.com. Email info.ampsconnected at gmail.com. Hit me up on Twitter or Instagram at ampsconnected. Until then, connectors, stay connected. (laughs)